This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good, when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp, specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour-operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar, and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of Goodwill Hunters. Today, I'm very, very excited to have Ricky Kej on the show. Ricky and I met back in February when we were doing the Australia-India Youth Dialogue together in Sydney and Melbourne. And from the moment I met Ricky, I was so inspired by his work and was so excited to have him on the podcast. So most importantly, Ricky is the first Grammy Award winner that we've had on the show, uh, which is a, a very exciting step. Um, but Ricky has had an amazing career and continues to have an amazing career in music, conservation, and diplomacy. So, Ricky, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Rachel. It's uh, it's nice to be on your show. Okay, so Ricky, uh, I might let you introduce yourself um, a bit more. So, can you tell us about what you do and what your journey into music has been? So yeah, so that's quite a long question. Yes, please <laughs> um, go for it. <laughs> so as you mentioned, I'm Ricky. I'm a musician. I'm an environmentalist. Two pillars that have pretty much dictated my whole life and all my life decisions. And uh, ever since I remember as a child, I've always been a musician. And I've always uh, been, uh, uh, as I said, an environmentalist. Uh, you know, uh, while my friends in school were very fascinated by their television screens and you know, and uh, by video games and cartoons and things like that. For me, the center of my universe was always my music system. And I would constantly listen to music. And uh, so basically, my ears were always more important than my eyes. And it's through music that I absolutely fell in love with the natural world. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you think about it, how did music start? Music started off as sounds from within nature. Music sounded, uh, it started off as sounds from within nature, sounds of the birds, sounds of the trees, sounds of the animals, sounds of the river flowing, sounds of the rain, sounds of the wind. And then uh, it became humans trying to imitate those sounds. And then it's only for the last few hundred years that music has actually become academic with notes and scales and things like that. But basically music started off as from within nature. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so basically that. Then I became a professional musician. That's also quite a long story, uh, but uh, I'll leave that for another story. podcast. Oh, no, no, no. You have to tell us a little bit. <laughs> so basically, uh, I was a, uh, I'd made a very strong decision uh, that I wanted to be a musician uh, for the rest of my life. I wanted music to be my hobby, my profession, my bread and butter, my everything. And uh, uh, as uh, a lot of your listeners may know that uh, in countries like India, uh, you know, music is not uh, treated as a valid profession. So my father, who is a third generation doctor, uh, did not believe that music could be a profession. And when I told him that I wanted to be a musician, he was completely against the idea. So then uh, there was a lot of fighting between my father and me and uh, lots of fireworks at home and not the good kind of fireworks. And um, my father and me reached a compromise that I would finish off a degree in dental surgery, that is a DDS. I would do a, a degree in dental surgery. And once I got that degree, my life was my own. So we made that deal. And that's exactly what I did. I went to college for five years. I, uh, at the end of five years, 
Uh, I did not know anything about dentistry, but I managed to get a degree, which is pretty much a testimony to the education system nowadays. <laughs> so, so, so I got the degree and uh, I very ceremoniously went to my father the day I got the degree and uh, I gave him the degree certificate and I told him that, you know, that this is for you. And, uh, you know, I want to be a musician, uh, a full-time musician from now onwards, because even while I was doing my dentistry, I was doing music in the evenings, but now I had the opportunity to do music for every minute of the day. So that's exactly what I did. And as I say, there was no turning back after that. And uh, so I started off my career doing a whole lot of commercials. Uh, that is, I was doing uh, commercials for television and radio. And uh, in a span of 12 years, I did uh, more than 3000 commercials. I was extremely successful at doing that. I was doing commercials for every big brand, whether it was a Google or a Microsoft or a Levi's or Lee, basically every brand and their competitor, wherever they are in the world, I was composing music for them. And I was working super hard in doing that. And then the next stage in my career came uh, when in 2000 and uh, I think it was about 2012, uh, 11 or 12, when it sort of struck me that these big brands have understood the power of music, where they are ready to spend a few thousand dollars on me to create a piece of music to drive a message of sales because they're always trying to sell something. And uh, not only that, they're spending a couple of million dollars to actually air that music on television and radio. So they understand that music is such a powerful language for communicating a message and not just for communicating a message, but for retaining that message deep into the head of a listener. So the songs that we learned during our childhood are the songs that we remember forever. The jingles that we listened to during our childhood are jingles that stick with us forever. So they understood that. And then that is when I made a very strong decision and it was almost like a very sudden decision that I'm not going to, I'm going to stop all forms of commercial music and every piece of music that comes out of me, comes out of my head, comes off my fingers, comes off my studio is going to be for positive social impact. And that is a pact that I made with myself and I've stuck to that pact now. So uh, moving ahead, uh, uh, my 14th album basically won me the Grammy Award. And then that is when I decided that I'm going to take this one step further. After I won the Grammy Award, I decided that I'm going to take it one step further and I'm going to only create music on sustainability and the environment. So that is what started the current journey that I'm on that I figured out that till the day I die, I'm only going to create music on sustainability and the environment. And that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to. Wow. I think you are phenomenal. And that is, that's just such an amazing story. Um, I want to ask you, uh, about a point you made earlier. You said that in India, careers in music are not encouraged. Why would that be? Because I would say that here in Australia, if if a young person wanted to pursue music, I can't imagine their family having a problem with that. So why do you think it is in India that it wasn't encouraged? For many reasons, I guess, because uh, parents always uh, drive, in India, parents always drive their decisions uh, based on fear. You know, and not on passion. Like, uh, for example, my father, he was basing his decision of me becoming a dentist um, on, on fear, you know, because he was fearful that, you know, that I would starve to death or I would not be successful as a musician or, you know, or, uh, you know, or what he would tell his relatives as to what I do for a living or, you know, and that's what he was basing his decisions on. Whereas I was decision my, uh, I was basing all my decisions on, on passion. Now, the thing is that uh, in India, unlike Australia, we do not have a strong enough infrastructure for the arts. Now, this problem is not just limited to music. It's limited to all forms of arts. That is that is uh, uh, that is dance and poetry and, uh, you know, and uh, the fine arts like sculpture, painting and things like that. It's it's um, it, it, it goes across all these art forms because we do not have the, num the same number of museums that that, you know, that Australia has. We do not have in fact, a single conservatory for music. So there are no proper degrees that can be awarded in music in India. When it comes to dance, there are no proper degrees that can be awarded when it comes to dance in India. There is no proper university that actually can give you a diploma or a degree in dance in India. So that way, the arts is always considered to be a hobby and not a profession. If I walk into a library in India, the books on art, the books on music will always be kept in the hobby section. It will never be in the, in the art section or it will never be kept in the... Uh, or it'll never be in the uh, it'll never be in the professional section, you know. So that's the way it is in India. And uh, owing to that, parents are always fearful that that uh, you know that uh, that if their child takes a career in the arts, then they do not have a traditional career 
path. Because when it comes to engineering, there is a very strong traditional career path because you finish off your degree, then you are selected into a company, and then you work over there, you climb up the ladder, then you do an MBA at some point in time. When you're a doctor, it's understood that either you join a hospital or you start up your own clinic. It's the same thing when you're a dentist. It's the same thing when you do an MBA degree or a master of business administration. But when it's music, you have to carve your own career path. And that's what parents are always fearful of. Yeah. I had never considered that a lack of infrastructure resulted in a lack of career options. And you've triggered my memory. Ricky, can you, we'll fast forward to 2019 for a quick second. Can you share the question that you asked Foreign Minister Maurice Payne in February and why you asked her that question? Because it is probably one of my favourite memories of, of this year so far. Is she still uh, your uh, foreign minister? Yeah, she is. She was, yeah, well, the government was re-elected on Saturday. Wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations to her. I'm thrilled about that. Uh, uh, So, yes, the question that I'd asked your foreign minister was that because the the whole session was about what can Australia and India do together. So there is a huge gap in India where when it comes to Western classical music, we do not have a single symphony orchestra in the whole of India. Whereas, uh, you know, countries like, let's say, the, uh, let's say the UK, UK must be having about easily about 30 or 40 of them. The, uh, the United States must be having at least about 100 symphony orchestras. Uh, Australia must be having in, uh, if, I have to, if I have to just pick a number, it would be at least more than 15 or 16 of them. Uh, whereas uh, in India, we don't have a single one of them. And it's shocking that Australia, with a, with a population of less than 25 million people, have got that many symphony orchestras. And uh, in India, we've got 1.3 billion people, that is 1,300 million people. And we do not have a single symphony orchestra just because we do not have the right number of musicians to actually create that symphony orchestra. And that is uh, owing to a lot of problems because, uh, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, that we do not have any infrastructure. We do not have a single conservatory that can award degrees. So there is no proper education when it comes to classical music. And in addition to that, even if we had a symphony orchestra, there is no proper auditorium uh, for the symphony orchestra to play because all the auditoriums in India are built for pop music. So they're built for amplification. That is, you know, with speakers and microphones and things like that. Whereas a symphony orchestra needs to play in an auditorium or or a concert hall, which is built for acoustics, where without any microphones, the symphony orchestra sounds beautiful. And uh, so that's the question that I asked your foreign minister, that is this something that Australia would like to help India with? Because Australia has got the know-how, Australia has got the infrastructure, Australia has been super successful at orchestras and halls and, and symphony concert halls. So why can't Australia help us out to build that infrastructure and that could make a beautiful partnership between our countries? I agree. And have you heard from the foreign minister, dare I ask? Uh, actually, to be honest, uh, it's my fault I haven't followed up because I... <coughs> I actually do not know how to follow up at this point. So so that's why I'm going to take a little bit of your help after this podcast and we'll Absolutely. try to get this out together. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, now that she's still got her job, uh, she's yeah. got another three years to help us. I, I think it's a. I think it was a really fascinating point, and um, let's come back to Australia and India and and um, what we've both learned about that relationship this year. I want to come back to your interest in the environment, though. For you to form such a passion about the environment from such a young age, did you witness uh, some environmental damage firsthand, or what do you think it was that that sort of made you feel? that the environment was the cause that really resonated with you? I guess it's twofold. Uh, one thing is that, uh, as I'd mentioned, for me, music and the environment has always been one and the same thing, music and nature. And it's very difficult for me to explain that uh, process in my mind because I myself do not know exactly. I cannot articulate my thoughts in that respect. But, you know, when I would listen to music, any kind of music, whether it was uh, classical music or whether it was Indian classical music or folk music or even heavy metal, uh, the only thoughts that would come to my mind was nature. So I formed a very deep connection with nature through music. And the second thing is that while growing up as a child, I was always called a very weird child by my parents and uh, by my friends and, you know, by my classmates. 
simply because when everybody would run away from seemingly dangerous animals like you know like lizards and snakes and rodents and rats and uh, frogs and things like that i was always drawn towards these animals and of course the regular animals too like dogs and cats and things like that but i would be drawn towards them i would look into their eyes constantly i would try to you know find personality in every single animal i would try to analyze as to what they're thinking i would try to find facial expressions and try to figure out what kind of people they are and uh, you know so so uh, i've always thought of all creatures and all animals as you know as brothers and sisters of mine and i've never thought of it as being my world and their world as being separate uh, i've always felt that you know that i share my world with them and you know and they're just my you know uh, they're just my you know extended family so so that's what uh, and that at a very young age is what made me what i am today a very very strong environmentalist because i believe i absolutely believe that we as humans need to live in coexistence with all species and all life for our own survival and i find to india has an interesting relationship with the environment which which you can speak to far better than i can but when I was in India, I was able to visit uh, a place called the Sacred Groves in Karnataka. I think I think mm-hmm. that's where I was, and um, we visited a forest and we met with the um, the local rangers that took care of the forest, and they approached it as a very spiritual place um, where you know the trees and 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 all parts of the forest had a real spiritual significance for them, and as such, the conservation programs in that area were really really significant. Um, and I saw yeah I saw the environment being incredibly well protected in that area Um, but then I think unfortunately conversely uh, some Australians nowadays certainly I speak for myself when I say I now associate India with companies like Adani Mm. and I think it's quite perplexing because we see we see this very spiritual understanding of the environment in India but we also see these major Indian corporations that show very little regard for the environment. Now, both of those assessments are generalizing, but I'm interested in, from your perspective, what is the cultural attitude towards the environment in India and do you see it changing? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, actually. And uh, the way you brought the whole uh, perspective of, like, you know, big corporations in India was fantastic. Now, the thing is that um, uh, uh, one of the oldest books written in uh, in uh, uh, in the world, like you know, one of the oldest known um, uh, book ever, is basically the Vedas, uh, and especially the Rig Veda, which is uh, which is known as the oldest book known to mankind. Now, the thing is that uh, these books spoke very, very strongly about coexistence, and these books have been dated to like six, seven thousand BC. And uh, they spoke very, very strongly about coexistence of mankind and not just coexistence of mankind with other humans, but with all life and not just with all life, but all entities living or non-living. And uh, so there's a very strong phrase in these books, which uh, which uh, in Sanskrit says, Vasudheva Kutumbakam, which uh, literally translates to the world is a family. Now, the thing is that uh, nowadays with modernization and stuff like that in India, people have sort of... Uh, people misunderstand this particular phrase uh, when they say the world is one family they talk about you know Hindus and Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and Jews and basically different parts of the human race whereas it it needs to be strongly understood that Vasudeva Kutumbakam is not just uh, coexistence between different parts of the human race but coexistence with all entities whether that entity is living or non-living and also these ancient books talk about the five elements in nature that is air, wind, water, space you know, uh, uh, Earth. So basically, all these uh, elements are absolutely essential for human existence. So right now, we understand through science and everything like that that you know that we, that you know that we need to uh, we need water for our existence. We need clean air for our existence. We know about all of that. But this was actually written in our ancient books, and it's funny that that you know that we ourselves it's it, it's basically hypocrisy that we ourselves have stopped listening to our ancient knowledge and stopped understanding our ancient knowledge, and we need to go back to that. Now, uh, when it comes to big corporations, now India is a very complicated country. Uh, unlike Australia, where the whole country can, you know, function with just one language, or the Nordic nations, where each nation can function with what, just one language, and all these countries have got very tiny populations. India has got 1.3 billion people, and uh, if you start off from any location in India and you travel about 50 kilometers, you're going to find another language over there. 
and not just another language as in uh, uh, just a dialect change but it's going to be an absolutely different language where the script is different the dialect is different and pretty much the, even the source of the language is uh, is completely different um, also our cultures are vastly different and that's the reason why we've got so many gods in india because it's not that every single person is praying to many gods it's just that there are many people praying to many many different gods you know so and compounded by all of that the biggest problem in india is that one third of our population that is almost 500 million people in india so actually 450 million people in india do not have access to a good standard of living and most of these people do not even have access to electricity so if you imagine that many people which is pretty much the entire population of america do not have access to electricity and all of these people are not productive after 6:30 in the evening because once the sun sets they are not productive at all so that is the situation in india now every single person in india deserves a good standard of living um you know because there is so much of globalization everybody knows that you know that they deserve a standard of living and they do deserve it because it's not that you know some people get electricity and some people are just forsaken or whatever so how do we give them a good standard of living that is the debate right now uh, india has got the second highest reserves of coal in the world so what do we do should we just you know burn up all of that coal and you know build maybe 500 coal power plants and just give all these 450 million people electricity so that is the debate in india because india as i mentioned such a complicated country we are still on a developmental arc we still have so many people who are forsaken we still have so many people in poverty we still have so many people who do not have access to electricity and that is where the big corporations come in and that is where people sometimes turn a blind eye to them simply because we believe that everybody requires a good standard of living and sometimes we cannot tell them that you know that you have to wait for 20 years or you have to wait for 10 years till renewable energy becomes cheaper and we can adopt that or till a foreign country gives us aid and you know and we can we can probably give you uh, give you solar energy or we can give you wind energy uh, and you have to wait at least 10 years or you have to wait for the next generation to get it so this is the problem it's a huge dilemma and it's very difficult to find a solution to this it's a huge dilemma and you've articulated yeah. that so well and i've i've worked in a few developing countries as you know and uh, it, it is the exact paradox that i hear time and time again whereby governments say we're a very poor country we don't have time to think about the environment and 20 years from now when our economic growth has increased and when we're in a better position with our living standards then we'll start caring about the environment but now no and i have a lot of empathy for that view but i also think that it's fundamentally flawed um mm. i think that conservation of the environment does result in economic gains um but i i can't articulate that as well as you can so what would you say to a government that has that view like what what would you say to the indian government on that no it's it's very difficult because see the thing is that um uh you know i travel a lot in the rural areas of india which which do not have some of these places do not have electricity some of these places do not have any basic sewage it's completely open defecation in these areas so basically i've traveled to these places i've spent many many days weeks sometimes in these areas trying to uh, engage with the populations now the thing is that you cannot explain to these people that let's make a better world for our children or for our children's children the usual you know the usual stock phrases that are used in you know in international conferences and things like that let's make a better world for future generations or whatever because the current generation itself could starve to death you know and the current generation itself could uh, uh, what do you call could not survive you know because if there is if there's a famine over there or if or if like you know they do not if aid does not reach them on time or whatever these are people who can just you know perish completely these are people who are you know who do not who cannot afford uh, proper gas stoves so they're using you know very dirty cooking fuels to actually eat their food they're using wooden pellets they're using coal they're using you know some, uh, what do you call that uh, they're using kerosene and their their homes are filled with these fumes and that is responsible for their children getting asthma and children getting because everybody talks about pollution in big cities but actually on ground in developing nations like african nations and indian nations the biggest killer when it comes to pollution is basically indoor pollution and uh, so basically how can you tell a person how can you tell a family like this that let, like you know that hold on to electricity will give you a better standard of living a little later or whatever and uh, you know and uh, uh, because i am a complete environmentalist but this is a dilemma that i face that you know that we cannot uh, on one side on one side we need to curb the effects of climate change we need to mitigate the effects of climate change but at the same time i feel that the west 
which is which is solely responsible for the problems of today uh, you know because whatever climate change effects we are uh, we are seeing is because of countries that have been developing for the last 150 years and developing nations are definitely not a part of that so i believe that it is the responsibility of developed nations to first of all be more responsible themselves which they are not and uh, because a country like united states is still the largest emitter in the whole world and uh, you know and uh, and they have to pretty much handhold the developing nations to actually help them uh, to get a better standard of living for their people number 1 and number 2 help them to develop in a more responsible manner so that they are not only helping the developing nation but they are helping the whole earth as a whole because it is their responsibility after having such a large carbon footprint for the last 150 years yeah you've explained that really well and i think that's a good segue into some of the projects that you're working on and that your company is working on um because you you are having a really profound impact on the conversation around the environment that we're having um so i'll take us back to february i remember distinctly one morning asking you how you'd slept that night before and you told me that you didn't sleep because you were <laughs> up all night working and you said that you do that a lot so can you um can you tell us about the project that you worked on earlier in the year with David Attenborough I think that's a good place to start <laughs> yeah so uh, uh this is a fun project it's a project about the uh, it was a natural history film um uh on the uh, on the western ghats which is in india uh, primarily in uh, karnataka so the western ghats is one of the top 10 biodiversity hotspots in the world it's also a unesco heritage site and uh, the western ghats has uh, i mean rivals uh, i mean only the amazon uh, can rival the western ghats in the number of species that are available in a region which are not available anywhere else in the world also the western ghats has got the highest number of elephants for a region anywhere in the world uh, the highest number of tigers for a region anywhere in the world so it's a beautiful beautiful place but largely unexplored so i was very thrilled that i got the opportunity to work uh, uh, to compose uh, the music for this film uh, because i absolutely love the western ghats but what made it even better was that i got to work with uh, david attenborough on this project because uh, he uh, narrated the entire uh, he narrated the film so that was absolutely amazing and he's a great great person 93 years old and uh, still going extremely strong a childlike fascination for what he does and uh, also now as we see with his latest documentary our planet and uh, and even the dark documentary on climate change that he's done he's become a huge voice uh for the climate movement and uh, and a very strong voice because he's gained all this credibility for the last you know uh, last 40 years of of uh, of being constantly in the public eye and being absolutely loved by every individual in the world in fact uh, a couple of my friends in britain were telling me that every time there's there's some sort of a natural disaster or uh, or even a man-made disaster like like you know the burning of a building or something like that which receives a lot of media attention in britain the first question anybody asks is that is david attenborough safe you <laughs> know <laughs> really <laughs> yes <laughs> oh wow he's like a national treasure he he is a national treasure not like one he is pretty much a national treasure and uh, so that's what so it was absolutely amazing doing this and you know and composing music uh, uh, underneath his voice it was it was absolutely uh, beautiful and a, and a and a lifetime opportunity so why do you think films about the environment and and music about the environment is that the medium that we need now because it seems like a lot of the conversations that we're having and a lot of the dialogues that we're having on the environment we've converted you know it's like we're preaching to the choir like those of us that get it get it but there seems to be this large group of people in politics and in corporations that are still not understanding the environmental crisis that we're facing so do you see music and films as the way to get through to them or who who is your audience for this sort of um media so yeah so uh, i'll answer this question in two parts now uh so there is this very important quote in conservation which i have pretty much lived my life by Uh, it's by baba diom uh, so baba diom said that at the end of the day uh, we as humans uh, will only protect things that we love because that's within our nature so we as humans will only protect things that we love we will only love things that we understand and we will only understand things that we are taught 
So basically, I believe that uh, through the language of music, through the language of film, uh, it's very important to get to get everyone in this world to fall in love with the natural world. You know, it's very important that all of us love our natural world, love our natural species, because right now we've sort of we are seeing a trend in this world where we only learn about species when they are on the brink of extinction or after they're extinct, and that needs to change. Uh, we all need to fall in love with the natural world, and through that love. Hopefully, we can rally everyone to protect, to conserve, and to sustain our planet. Now, the thing is that when we talk about uh, saving the world, everybody talks about saving the planet. Let's save the world and all that stuff. I think that narrative also needs to very strongly change because we are not saving the planet at all. Because the planet, where no matter what happens, the planet is going to continue revolving around the sun. It's going to continue rotating around its own axis. What we are doing by protecting nature. is basically we are protecting ourselves from extinction we are saving ourselves from extinction because whether the human race exists or not the planet is going to continue surviving whether the ocean levels come up like you know the, the planet is going to continue surviving it's just that we are saving ourselves from extinction and that's exactly what we are doing now uh uh they're just trying to figure out what your question was <laughs> so i went on a completely different tangent no you went on a great about tangent film. so yeah. so we're talking about whether um music and films yeah. and documentaries are getting through to people correct so the second part to my answer was that uh, you know what do i do through music now uh, what i do through music is uh, is threefold uh, the first thing that i do is that i create music and i perform music Uh, uh in a ground up approach where i do concerts to multiple thousands of people uh like you know 20000 people 80000 people 100000 people so we do these massive concerts where i uh, perform my music on the environment all my concerts have got a large screen showcasing beautiful visuals uh, which are synced to the music uh, our musicians interact with the visuals so it's a beautiful audio visual spectacular audio visual experience and the uh, the complete emphasis on is is on emotions where we get everybody we we give uh, everybody a strong environmental and sustainability message through the emotional language of music and uh, the second kind of concerts that i do is basically uh, what i call the top down approach where i perform to world leaders to change makers to uh, business leaders like for example in the last 2 years i've done concerts at the house of, for the house of commons in canada i've done concerts uh, three times now at the un general assembly in new york at the un headquarters in geneva twice now and uh, in our indian parliament so i've been doing concerts to world leaders and to even business leaders at various business forums and conferences so where they are intimate audiences and uh, my messaging is to them because it my messaging is done to them in such a way that they can make a huge difference and huge impact through their circles and you know and through their immense reach and through legislation and policy and things like that and we've had a lot of success with that respect then the third aspect to it is children uh, now as you know the project that i discussed with you when uh, during ai aiyd that uh, you know when i got into this whole movement of uh, of uh, of conservation and sustainability music i realized that uh, it's very important for me to start from the children because everybody talk about you know rewiring uh, the youth and changing mindsets and things like that but if you start from the children at the primary school level then you wouldn't have to do any of those rewiring we wouldn't have to do any of that changing mindsets and things like that because children themselves are born itself with uh with compassion they're born with empathy you know because because that's our human instinct our human instinct is to help people our human instinct is to be compassionate our human instinct is to live in coexistence but for some reason the way our system works is that all of these instincts are basically driven out of our children through the education system and uh, because the education system teaches us to be selfish the education system teaches us that you know that we have to win competitions we have to be the best in our class we have to be the best at whatever we do which means that you cannot be the best without being better than somebody else which is which in my opinion is a completely a wrong notion so what i have done is that uh, i've created these songs uh, based on sustainability uh, primarily based on the sustainable development goals of the united nations i've worked very closely with unicef in developing these songs these songs are very simple songs any child can learn these songs in just one listening and they are very uh, infectious they are very fun all of them are extremely positive and uh, what we are doing is that we are disseminating that through the education system so in india starting this uh, year 2019 it is in 5 million textbooks across india and we are hoping to scale that up to 11 million textbooks by uh, 2021 
And uh, so children will grow up itself learning songs about sustainability and these songs will stick with them for their whole life. We are also uh, working with the American governments. We are working with the education system over there to get these songs into various schools across many states in America. Same thing with a couple of Asian, uh, uh, Southeast Asian countries, also a couple of Northern African nations. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to spread these songs far and wide and in multiple languages. And I remember reading some of the lyrics of the songs in February and they, they really were infectious. They're really, really good songs. That's, that's great. It's really interesting to hear more about the work that you're doing. And certainly I, I understand that, that the, that the music and the films are a really compelling way to, to teach people to love the environment especially if they weren't taught to love the environment as a child. And um, I think that's fantastic. So I know that you've attended, as you mentioned there, you've attended a lot of UN conferences and you attended, was it the UNEP, UN Environment Program Conference in somewhere in Northern Africa uh, a couple of months ago? In Nairobi, right. So could you tell us about that? So the UN Environment Assembly is... uh is uh, organized by the uh, uh, UN Environment. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful assembly which lasts for about 11, 12 days. And what happens during this particular, uh, what happens during this conference is that all the member states of the United Nations, which is currently 193 countries, all of them come together in Nairobi and uh, they pass a whole lot of resolutions, which every single one of the 193 countries need to pass together unanimously. Like, for example, there was the plastics resolution as to, because plastics is one of the biggest threat uh, to our environment today, and especially to our oceans and our uh, ocean animals. So uh, so there was a plastics resolution that was passed about, about uh, the use of single-use plastics and the ban of single-use plastics and manufacture of single-use plastics. Also, another issue that is affecting our world is nitrogen, because nitrogen is a gas that you know, not too many people uh, talk about, but um, it is something that is very responsible um, for uh, for uh, for the uh, for the rise in pollution levels and also sometimes a lack of pollution. And uh, also, it is uh, very responsible for agriculture and food and uh, things like that. So basically, there was a nitrogen re- resolution passed. There was resolutions passed on species, various various resolutions on climate and on on uh, the industrial emissions and things like that. So basically, this whole conference is for that, where all these countries come together and they decide on what do we do for the next few years and how do we make this world a better place? And all of them unanimously agree on certain things. So it is very inspiring to be there to see, you know, uh, uh, to get a glimpse rather of, you know, how the whole world can actually work together uh, to make this world a better place for everyone and everything. So you've seen firsthand how countries operate in international forums. You've seen how India operates and you've also seen how Australia operates firsthand. Do you uh, have any opinions on Australia's position in international climate and environment discussions? I believe that, uh, uh, see, when it comes to India, India uh, for the last few years has been very, very passionate about the environment. And uh, in fact, our uh, Prime Minister Modi had won the Champions of the Earth Award from the UN Environment, uh, uh, which is the biggest award when it comes to the environment all over the world. He shared the award with uh, with uh, with uh, President Macron from uh, France. And uh, the reason why Modi won the award was uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, Prime Minister Modi has uh, has made a very strong resolution and passed legislation that by 2025 there will be a complete ban in the manufacture of single-use plastics across India. Now, we've already seen the ban in a couple of states in India, like the state which I live in, that is Karnataka. There is a complete and absolute ban in single-use plastics. So basically, and this uh, started, uh, this came into effect one and a half years ago. And uh, so basically, in the whole state of Karnataka, I can challenge anyone uh, to actually find a plastic straw or to find a plastic bag. It just does not exist in the state of India. I mean, in the state of Karnataka. And same thing with a couple of other states like Sikkim and Maharashtra. Uh, so single-use plastics has been completely and absolutely banned. Uh, there are some single-use plastics that are still used, like, for example, syringes and medical supplies, because there's no alternative to that. Uh, but uh, So those are the essential uses, but uh, by and large, they're completely banned. 
and uh, the manufacturer also has been completely banned the second reason why he won the award was because he started something known as a solar alliance which australia is also a part of so the solar alliance is basically uh, a, is basically a group of uh, uh, of uh, of countries which have got uh, which have got relatively tropical climates and get a certain amount of sunlight uh, through the year and uh, so basically uh, the aim is to create a whole lot of electricity through this alliance of many many nations so that there can be distribution of electricity so right now we are still on the technological phase of figuring out how to uh, transmit this electricity and how to store this electricity uh, but it's but everything is moving at a really really fast pace because there's a whole lot of political will behind this uh, segment now when it comes to australia uh again this is uh, i think australia is uh, uh, by and large the population has become extremely environmentally conscious i believe uh because through my visit and through my conversations with australians in uh, these various conferences i believe that the public is uh, being very very environmentally conscious but i believe that there is a huge amount of political will lacking uh when it comes to australia and when it comes to uh, when it comes to climate because australia can do so much more uh when it comes to that especially when it comes to you know mining and when it comes to uh what do you call it when it comes to industrial emissions and you know and uh, and you know and even levying something like a carbon tax because as i mentioned you know unlike developing nations australia has already reached a curve of development australia is already pretty much a developed nation so there is a lot where if australia can do if there is the political will to actually uh to actually uh, what do you call that uh, to actually you know uh, act on it to actually do to actually something. act on it yeah. to actually do something so i think australia the only thing that it lacks right now is strong political will to actually uh, to actually do something extremely substantial for the environment i completely agree with you and i won't comment on our recent election results <laughs> but we have re-elected a party that uh does not have a strong environmental agenda in comparison to other parties which uh is is a worrying trend for me because it makes me question whether the voting public whether the majority of our voting public understands um what a good environmental policy looks like and understands that our existing government doesn't necessarily have one and, and that's worrying i i, I don't know I don't know how we get to a point where the general public understands that we need that political will. Yeah, get me to do a couple of concerts over there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> we'll get you the the conservatorium and we'll get a concert tour happening. <laughs> um so I think just a couple more things I wanted to ask you before we close. Um I think first of all it sounds to me that a lot of the advocacy work that you've been doing has been directed at at governments and also at the United Nations. Um something I really like talking about um and something I'm really passionate about is how the private sector can help because I have an enormous amount of confidence in corporations to 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 do the right thing. I think that it's a lot easier for corporations to make changes than it is for governments. and i think that um the private sector really can drive a lot of the social and environmental agendas that we have if they choose to so like government they also need to have the will to do so but i think it's often easier um when um taking care of the environment makes economic sense as well as environmental sense so what i suppose my question is there is how have you worked with the private sector and and what sort of messaging do you think the private sector needs to hear about the environment so now um, as you correctly mentioned i uh, most of my advocacy work is with the government and intergovernmental bodies like the united nations uh, simply because uh, i strongly believe that uh, i strongly believe that uh, protest uh, is not something that uh, i'm good at uh, in the sense that uh, because even though i believe that protest is sometimes absolutely essential but protest is not something uh, is not a medium that i ad- i adopt uh, simply because i believe that no matter how much i hate a government or no matter how much i believe a government is uh, is uh, completely on the wrong path i believe in still working with that government because they have been democratically elected so i believe in working with the government and and trying to bring out change and trying to talk sense into them or trying to you know they are trying to figure out what drives their 
motivations and what what is their motivating factor in doing the rubbish that they are doing and trying to figure out how i can motivate them in another way uh, you know because at the end of the day when it comes to leaders all over the world uh, we actually do not have any leaders uh, because uh, nowadays what we have in the world are basically followers because uh, the way the democratic system works because democracy is the best system of governance in our world today but uh, uh, but unfortunately democracy does have its own flaws uh, number one is that you know that uh, that uh, leaders become followers because they're constantly you know focus grouping things and they are they are, they are trying to figure out what the public wants and uh, what a higher percentage of the public wants and they want to do that they're trying to figure out what their vote banks uh, you know would prefer so that they uh, so that they can act on that rather than acting on what is actually essential and the second reason why democracy has got a little bit of a problem is that um uh, governments only exist for about 4 or 5 years like in your case is 3 years which is like a ridiculously ridiculously short period of time and uh, so uh, when it comes to the environment it's not possible for you to show results in the policy that you make within your own term and uh, so that is why governments need to showcase uh, uh, needs to gratify their own constituencies through policies which uh, which are more economic in nature policies that are uh, that are more industrial in nature because they show very fast results and uh, you know and uh, governments need to fight elections every 4 or 5 years and they need to show results every 4 to 5 years in order to get reelected and most electorates they will not bother about anything if the government tells them that they'll not bother about a government telling them that you know that uh, i'm doing something amazing right now you you are probably going to have to sacrifice a couple of things for the next 20 years but after 20 years it's going to be absolutely amazing you know so so that government that kind no of a government will, that. <laughs> that that kind of a government will never get reelected you know so 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 that's the thing you know so basically so that's the reason why uh, the the environment usually takes a back seat because it's very difficult to gratify the public on environmental measures within the term of their political office now uh, so that's why i try to work with governments in trying to figure out what they can do how i can change mindsets within their constituency so that they can do the right thing and you know things like that when it comes to corporations now i've got a slightly different uh, uh, opinion than yours because uh, the thing is that yes i absolutely believe that corporates can make a huge difference even more than what the government can do but i actually do not have faith in corporations simply because if you look at if you look at history or if you look at uh, uh, if you look at the way things are going on right now uh, in fact i had uh, attended a conference in geneva at the united nations headquarters and over there there was a scientist from uh, switzerland who had this beautiful half an hour presentation on all the european corporations as to how they are following beautiful regulations when it comes to the european and the nordic nations they're following beautiful regulations when it comes to waste management when it comes to pollution levels when it comes to environmental protection when it comes to oceans protection but the same corporations when they are in countries like africa and when they are in countries like india and southeast asia they're completely flaunting those rules and they are uh, since these countries are not as beautifully regulated as europe they are, they are causing the most amount of damage in these countries like for example a company like nestle uh when they were in uh, when they're in switzerland and when they're in uh, different parts of europe they have the stringent food regulations but in india they've got an extremely high lead content in all their food materials they've got a high monosodium glutamate uh, level in their food and in fact they've been banned many times in our country but they constantly keep bribing our authorities and coming back uh, coming back on our uh, supermarket shelves so basically the thing is that corporations need to be regulated and in my opinion that's the only way for it to happen because without regulations corporates corporations are only going to look at profits and because at the end of the day the 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 corporations and their employees are only given you know pats on the back and they're only given their appraisals based on economics they're not given pats on the backs and appraisals based on environmental protection and sustainability of the planet so the thing is that uh, so uh, corporations need to be regulated and uh, and corporations need and it, and these regulations need to be enforced in such a way that corporations stick to these regulations i i think i think you're exactly right i think the regulatory environment is incredibly important and there are circumstances where um doing the right thing by the environment also makes economic sense and i think those are great opportunities whereby the most environmental option is also the most um ec- uh, business friendly and profitable option um and we see some instances of that but 
uh, but not all, and certainly not the example you've just shared about Nestle and and high lead content in food. Like I, I don't even know how you'd tackle that with Nestle, but um, yeah, certainly the regulatory environment is incredibly important. So the question that I want to ask you to finish, what does success look like for you in 10 years? So 10 years from now in the year 2029, um, how would you define success? Uh, so the thing is that, uh, uh, it, to be really honest, uh, as a musician, uh, uh, you know, I do not have any long-term goals simply because, you know, growing up as a child, you know, the, the only goal you would think about you know, as a musician is, you know, winning the Grammy award, you know, and that seemed like, that seemed like pretty much an absolutely unattainable dream, you know, uh, in the sense that that could never happen during this lifetime, but I managed to win a Grammy while I was 33 years old. So that was quite amazing. So, so there is nothing more that I would like to achieve in terms of like, you know, a milestone in my career. And, uh, and of course, winning awards is always very good. Uh, a lot of people say that, you know, I'm not in it for the awards or I don't like awards and things like that. But I've got a different mindset on that because I believe that there are two ways you can look at an award. One way to look at an award is basically through vanity that, you know, I'm better than you and I won this, which is obviously the wrong way. And uh, the correct way to look at an award is to look at it as a, as a platform. You know, that I've been given this platform, a lot more people now recognize me, a lot more people now uh, uh, take me seriously. So it's my chance to do something bigger and better uh, that a lot of people will benefit through. And that's the way that I look at award. Every single award that I win, I look at it as an absolute platform that, you know, that I can stand on this platform now and I can, you know, and I, I've got a louder voice. And so how am I going to utilize this voice? Am I going to uh, so, uh, how am I going to, uh, how am I going to try and make lives better? How am I going to try to, you know, create more positive social impact? So that's the idea. So when it comes to goals right now, they are more, uh, they're more, uh, as I go along, like, for example, um, uh, if I have to look at it, if I have to look at it, like from a very, uh, I'm just trying to think aloud right now, but if I have to look at it from a more longer perspective than 10 years, I would say that, uh, the musician in me would feel that, you know, if I'm able to continue making music uh, till uh, till my deathbed, you know, if I'm able to continue making music and creating music, then I would consider my life to be super successful. I think that's beautiful. It's actually really <laughs> refreshing. Um, I, I think I think having goals is wonderful, but I think it's also really nice to hear that you've achieved the major goal that you wanted to achieve, and now you're sort of surrendering. To whatever comes. Yeah, actually, actually, to correct you, I've achieved the goal that I never knew that uh, uh, that I never knew that I was going to achieve. You know? so, yeah. <laughs> so it just came as a surprise, you know. So that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I think yeah. uh, that's great. And Ricky, your your contribution to the environment globally is is truly amazing. Like you are honestly one of the most inspiring people I've met. And um, I'm really glad to have you on the show. And I'm really glad that we could share these insights. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's a, it was a very, very fun chat with you. <laughs>